1: The following podcast is a Dear
0: Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today's episode is lovingly sponsored by my new friends at Healthy Nest, a safe space for essentials for new and expecting parents. You can visit them at www.healthynesting.com. And I have enlisted my guest from Mount Sinai, a colleague who is a developmental pediatrician, which means she's like a combination of a child psychologist, a pediatrician, and a neurologist all in one, Dr. Caroline Martinez, because I wanted to talk to her about helping children cope with this extended quarantine um, and also focus a little bit on the special needs of kids who have chronic anxiety Kids who have ADHD and other learning issues, and children with autism. And then I wanted to address the questions that I've received about helping children cope with grief and loss. And so I'm going to talk about grief and loss in terms of our collective societal grief and loss, as well as the scary scenarios and general fears that kids are going through. And finally, how to talk to kids about the experience of loss if they've lost a loved one to COVID-19 or anything else during this time. It's a difficult discussion and so important to be prepared for as we navigate these unprecedented times. But these are also important discussions to be prepared for in general because we know that we cannot shelter children from experiencing loss and grief and that that is an important part of being a human being?
1: I would start by saying it's a very, very hard time for everyone. And it can be especially hard on parents that do have kids with special needs. Often kids with special needs have very weak regulatory skills and they tend to respond to disruptions like the one we're experiencing with more anxiety and more challenging behaviors. Um, So the first thing parents of all children really, including kids with special needs can do in this time is to establish and maintain a new routine if they haven't already. Routines are very important because they give structure and a sense of safety to kids. So um, if parents have no idea where to start, They can use their schedule before the quarantine as a guide, but they should pick consistent times for all their activities like breakfast, lunch, dinner, bedtime. Uh, It's great if they can make it into a visual schedule and really spell things out for their kids. They can also make time to talk with the kids about organizing the day and brainstorm on a schedule. They should plan to have like a family work time where everybody's working so that kids see that it's a serious thing. Families should also be realistic- About the amount of work time that is appropriate for their kids, and that's going to be pretty variable depending on age of the child and their developmental level. Um, Generally, with typically developing kids, a good kind of work period would last about five to twenty minutes if the child is in elementary school, and fifteen to forty-five minutes for older kids. Um, And they can schedule breaks and snacks in after that amount of time period. So. Kids can recharge their batteries.
0: I really want to go over that in a little bit more detail because we have gotten a lot of questions from people wondering, you know, how many breaks kids can get and feeling frustrated that their children aren't able to pay attention to or adhere to the schedule that either school has created or they've created for their kids. And maybe normalizing just how many breaks kids need Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. really important, regardless again of special needs. Um, but especially when you're dealing with kids who have unique challenges. Yeah, so um, depending
1: on the amount of time that you feel is appropriate for your kid, which again is going to be variable and will depend partly on their age, but also on their developmental level, you can schedule a work period for that amount of time and then have a break after and set, set some benchmarks um, expecting that, you know, the longer they work, the longer break they will need. Um, a good kind of short break if they haven't done too much focusing is a five minute break and they can kind of, you can go through to in advance and pick some, activities that are appropriate for that five minute break, like a snack or pet the dog or go to the bathroom or maybe you know run around for a little bit before sitting down again. But it's hard to say exactly how much time. Um, again, the rule of thumb for a typically developing elementary school kid is five to 20 minutes. Um, younger than that, you know, no more than 10 minutes. Um, and for middle and high school students, it's sort of between 15 to 45 minutes.
0: And if you give this a, a try for a week and it doesn't seem to be working, what are some signs that you might want to adjust that timeframe? Initially, you want to try to
1: set it up to be as successful as possible and then extend um, the child's capability, you know, as you see, they're able to do. Um, you can set some incentives, you know, time that they can earn to spend time doing what they want to do, like social media or gaming or listening to music. If you, if you feel that it's not successful at all, um, I would ratchet down the expectations and try to recreate the schedule with the, the smaller periods of time for focusing. I guess it's hard to say um, because you want to do sort of an in-depth analysis of what's going wrong. Is this something that you know your child is capable of, but they're not doing it in this setting? And why is that? Is it because there are certain distractions? Is there not a good workspace? What's going on in the house around them? Collaborate. You know, it's always a good idea to collaborate with your child um, and ask them their ideas for Mm -hmm. organizing their days. Um, The more they feel included, the more likely they are to cooperate. Great. And that can start as young as you have kids that need schedules. Mm -hmm. Writing it out and spelling out the schedule and um, figuring out where you're going to need to scaffold and help your kids a little bit more with incentives and where they're able to function independently um, will be a process. And that can be kind of reevaluated every few days. So the other thing I would do in this new schedule is try to incorporate some prior habit and, and take time to point out to kids the things that are the same, like what you're having for breakfast. Maybe you're having the same thing for breakfast that you had before and let them know that even though things have changed and they're doing a new routine now, they're still having that same thing like pancakes for breakfast, maintaining the sense of familiar this. The, all this unfamiliar can provide them a sense of stability and really take down their anxiety. Along those lines, there should be a clear expectation of rules. Um, so, just because this is kind of a crazy time, we don't want to relax all our rules and discipline. So, specifically for kids that have ADHD, it's important to set um, the allowable screen time um, and stick to it. Often they have times they have a difficult time with transitions. So you really want to be clear about the expectations for screen and non-screen time for them.
0: So we can have sort of a a pause in day-to-day rules when we're out of quarantine, but even within the context of quarantine, there are boundaries. We're going to stick to them and then we'll reevaluate when quarantine is over. Yes, exactly.
1: Um, Also, you know, certain things that we do help Reduce the insanity in the house, household. Um, mm-hmm. So, if that's going to, if the extra screen time is going to buy you that kind of period where you can get things done, I'm all for it. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's also important to find times to connect with them. Again, right. that the consistency of your attention will help them to feel safe. You can find, I have. Some friends that are doing a like a family theme in certain evenings. So one person sets a certain theme and they look for costumes and way to decorate the table and they pick the menu based around that theme, like hippie night. You could have a family game night, try to kind of incentivize and gamify mundane things so that they're positive and fun. Like one example we used was a, a laundry pile sorting contest. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have breakfast for dinner one night. Um, and try to do these kind of play activities, play some games or pick up on an interest that they might have and spend some time with them on that interest. So connecting amongst one another and also, um, if possible, with peers from school um, and family members that are outside the house kind of virtually. We have some kids um, in our practice that are doing online Scrabble with grandparents um, and also online show and tell. Um, and that's really good for our younger kids or our developmentally delayed kids um, so that they have to plan the activity and pick something that they're going to be sharing and think about why they're picking that object um, and a few things that they really like about that object.
0: I love that. Thank you. I, I, I love the gamifying the mundane. I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. And we are the hosts of A Thing or Two with Claire and Erica, a weekly podcast all about discovery and enthusiasm. Well, that's how we describe it, but someone else described it even
1: better, I think, as a unique mix of urgent discussions of non-urgent things and thoughtful conversations of important and otherwise ignored things. If you want to check it out and see what it's all about, check back every Monday when we drop new episodes. I think you'll like it. It's a great Monday morning ritual. A
0: Thing or Two with Claire and Erica. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is going to be different for typical learners versus more atypical learners. But in typical learners, I always stress not using external rewards or um, incentives to get kids to work harder or to get kids to try to do better in school because I don't want to promote external motivation, because we know that when you're looking for external rewards, you may not actually have as much motivation in general. Whereas with atypically developing kids, sometimes you do need to use other motivating factors, right? Other incentives to get kids to comply. In this online learning setting, I'm, I'm curious what you think about incentives for participating and for engaging in what is really a difficult way of learning and new for all of us? Unfortunately, it's all we have
1: right now. Um, but if your child is not incredibly self-directed or self-regulated, they might have a hard time with it. And you know, parents are really being asked to fill this big educator role in a lot of places. For instance, many of the public schools we know um, that have uh, regular classrooms and special education classrooms are just giving sort of lists of uh, assignments for kids to get through. And there's no online participation aspect of it. And that forces the parents to really be the teacher and the parent and the household manager and it's a lot. And so parents shouldn't get discouraged or feel like they have to fill every role at once. Um, there are certain things that they can do to promote learning. And one I would say would include incentives. Um, like, like you mentioned, kids with atypical development, especially ADHD, have difficulty with being motivated to do tasks that they find difficult or be boring. So we often have to give these external rewards or external incentives um, to help motivate them. And the hope is that they will internalize these external motivators over time.
0: So what's an example of a good incentives program for kids who are struggling with these online classes or at-home classes, or even just having difficulty taking direction from parents when they're used to a different setting, when they have to kind of hunker down and pay attention to what a teacher is saying.
1: Um, So when you want to, like we kind of were speaking about before is set the situation up for success. Um, so that remove distractions and really create a workspace for them. Ask them in advance sort of how, you know, how long they think they can work for or how long they can interact with the teacher or the classroom for. Really engage them in the process as much as possible. And then perhaps come up with a list of things that they can choose from um, if the activity is completed that will act as a reward. Often the reward should be kind of as immediate as possible um, for kids that are having a really hard time with it, and then as they're more capable, you can have a delayed reward system, like they get a check or a sticker, um, and once they earn a certain amount of those, then they can get a reward that they pick out from like a. Little toy from a bag, um, although it's very hard to order things right now, um, but they might be interested in more internet time or doing a favorite activity, watching a TV show or a movie.
0: Right. Picking family movie choice of the night. Mm-hmm. I don't That's even a know. good one.
1: For our kids that are very delayed or have limited um, verbal capabilities, parents can kind of pick one thing a day. And this often applies to kids with intellectual disability or autism. Mm-hmm. Parents can pick mm-hmm. one skill a day um, to work on. Maybe it's following a task or an activity of daily living skills that the child might have been working on with school at school. Um, and really just throughout the day, try to spend a few minutes reinforcing that skill. One thing that we did want to note with these kids, too, is that um, some regressions in skills and or behavior may occur with all these schedule disruptions, um, and we want to keep track track of those so that they can be targeted when school reopens. Mm. Um, And parents can also connect with the teacher that knows the child. They should be in communication with the teacher or with the therapist or both and have them problem solve about why that behavior might be occurring. And then, you know, when in doubt, we always say to go back to the basic behavior principles, such as ignoring some of the negative behaviors that you're seeing and praising positive behaviors.
0: Okay. So apart from keeping these rigorous schedules, what are some other things that parents can do if they have a child who, is, who has high anxiety in general, um, is chronically anxious? So there are two
1: things that we tend to do when we're faced with anxiety that everybody really does that we want to not try not to do. Um, So one is we tend to focus on what we don't know and what we can't control. Um, And two is we avoid that thing that makes us anxious and that tends to also increase anxiety. So not that anyone wants to see the child unhappy, um, but we don't want to try to remove all the stressors because learning to tolerate their anxiety is what makes kids manage their anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't want to avoid things or talking about things just because they make a child anxious. So the other thing we want to do is is really talk to the child about their feelings and validate those feelings, Um, but you don't want to you know, empower those feelings. So you want to have sort of a positive note saying, I know this is scary, but I'm going to help you kind of work through all these um, things that are making you scared. Try to think things through and help the child kind of realize her capabilities in this time. Mm. Um, And also minimize exposure to things that may be making the child more anxious without cutting them out entirely. Um, So you don't want to have the news on 24 seven. The other kind of big thing is to model healthy ways of handling anxiety. yourself. Yes. Our kids are picking up on us and our approach. Um, and if we become more anxious, we'll actually amplify uh, their anxiety. We're kind of an emotional barometer for our kids. Mm. Um, so try to do whatever you can to speak with a professional. If you're feeling especially anxious to manage your, and mitigate your own anxiety the same sort of pattern that we're having, which is hard not to have as a reaction where we're kind of overestimating the risk because it's, it's everywhere that this is a risky disease and it's um, very serious and people are dying from it. And we also underestimate sort of our ability to to manage, but we can point out these things for a child that um, actually, you know, kids are, you're not getting very sick and often they're not getting sick at all. And also these are the things that we can do to keep ourselves
0: safe. So what are the opportunities that parents with anxious kids can take on during this challenging period? During this period, we can
1: kind of look at it as a real opportunity to help children learn coping skills and learn that they're really capable of a lot. Um, So with anxiety specifically, our goal is for parents to encourage their participation in routine activities and think more realistically about risk. Um, But in general, despite the fact that this is this huge, daunting task, um, families can learn together that by taking this proactive approach to tackling challenges, they can come out stronger and more resilient than ever before.
0: And now for listener questions and answers, I'm going to answer first a question about helping children cope with societal grief and loss. And, you know, that's something that everybody's going through. Societal grief and loss is this collective experience. Unless your household is completely stress-free and absent of the overt changes of day-to-day life, which is highly unlikely, it's important to acknowledge that this experience is one in which we have lost the familiarity of our day-to-day routines and have been forced to accept some degree of uncertainty. It's very painful for children to lose freedom and connection. This is especially true for older children who thrive most in peer-to-peer interactions. So acknowledging these losses are important and the only way to grieve these losses is through acknowledging them. The first thing is to accept all feelings, remembering that grief, while it may be present as a sadness, may also be present as anger. People experience grief in many different ways. Sometimes they want to experience it individually and sometimes collectively. How they experience it can come out in so many different emotions. So with all feelings, when we acknowledge and name our feelings without judgment, we can take a step forward towards acceptance and feeling better. In this particular crisis, all feelings are okay. So we want to avoid making comparisons to those who are in worse situations if a child is complaining or is angry or sad or implying that a child is overreacting. And while it's important to have feelings of gratitude and certainly practice those every day for our health and safety, it's also helpful for children to be compassionate with themselves around negative feelings as well. And the best way to do this, of course, is to have compassion for yourself when you're going through the same thing. And if you can establish frequent check-ins on negative feelings, maybe five minutes a day. 10 minutes a day, it will keep them from becoming too overwhelming. So instead of having to hold in those feelings until they explode with anger or sadness or anything else, um, children can work to express them in these small ways every day. You can model this for your children by saying something like, I know there are many more concerns in this world right now, but I want to say that right now I feel angry that I can't see my friends. And... As all of our households may be more tense and angry in this uncertain time, activities like maintaining routines and engaging in self-care are even more important. So that's part of this way to, to support the collective grief and loss. There's also the idea that children are either hearing about, seeing, or fantasizing about scary scenarios and have general fears, as again, we all are. So children may also be imagining scary scenarios or have a ton of questions about death related to COVID-19, but not related to the loss of a loved one in particular. Now, there are age appropriate things that happen. You know, preschoolers tend to fixate on questions about death and um, the cycle of life anyway. If you notice, it's often part of the lesson plan to have a life cycle of a butterfly, of a flower, of a frog, Well, right now, they're going to be questioning it even more. These kids may be exposed to news stories that show daily death tolls and numbers that they have never seen before. So if your child is expressing grief or general fears about death, try to help them name exactly what it is that they're afraid of. And then you can address the specific fear and offer them reassurance. So an example is to name everyone who is okay in their life. And remind them that you're doing all the things every day to keep yourself safe. For younger children, this may include reminding them of the measures that you take to keep your body safe by washing hands, by staying at home, by not playing with friends in the ways that we're used to. So now I'm going to address a different kind of loss, um, how you can help children cope who have experienced the loss of a loved one. So... The first thing is to be honest with your child. It can feel so hard to share terrible news with a child, any terrible news. And sometimes adults may be tempted to use vague language or sugarcoat the truth. If a loved one dies, it is so important to be explicit and say so. So examples of concrete language may include something that lets your child know that their body has, this person's body has stopped working that they will not be coming back. You want to avoid using confusing words like passed away or someone passed, or they went to sleep and will never be waking up because that can cause fears and confusion. You really um, want it to be clear what's happening. You can also reassure your child that just because someone's body has died, that doesn't mean that they don't continue to be a part of our memory and our hearts. And then, you know, How far you take that really depends on your own beliefs about what happens to us after we die. And that's just a big, great unknown. So you can definitely expect that children may be curious about death and what happens next. And answering your child's questions according to what you believe or want to teach your children to believe will be the most helpful and the most connected you can be. You can also tell them that every family has different beliefs, but that these are yours and your family's. And if it's more comfortable, you can also admit that you just don't have all of the answers, but you are open to their questions, their continued conversations, and what their beliefs are about what might be happening. Also, make sure that they know that there is no right or wrong way to feel during times like this. Leave daily space to acknowledge feelings, including your own. So keep in mind that grief is uneven. And some days, just when you think you have a handle on how your child is doing or how you're doing or responding or reacting, it may change for the better or for the worse. Similarly, when you think you've gotten past the pain, it may hit your child again. For younger children, one activity to try is to ask your child to list all the different types of weather and then ask them, Does weather stay the same or does it change? So that you can give them an understanding of how things just aren't static. Things, feelings will come and feelings will go. And you can even ask them what their emotional weather is. So you can say, what's your emotional weather today? Are you feeling cloudy? Are you feeling partly sunny in a hurricane? Ask them to think about how their weather changes each day sometimes many times a day, and again, reassure them that their mood will change as often as the weather and that they won't always feel the way they are feeling right now. And don't be afraid to share your emotions. It actually can be really helpful for children to see that you're managing your own difficult feelings. You don't have to pretend that this is easy. You can say something like, of course I am sad because this was my father and we can be sad together because it's sad to lose people we love but I won't always be sad like this and I will feel better. And that lets them know that you're completely comfortable with these feelings of pain and sadness, because you know that that's just part of your experience. That also lets children feel safe, that they don't have to worry about you because you've got this, even if you're feeling a lot of pain and showing sadness. The loss of one important person in a child's life can make children worry that there will be other losses to come. So whenever possible, do reassure your child that you and others that they love are safe and healthy. That's going to be really important because you're fighting against your own trauma. You're fighting against the news, which I hope I've been very clear to turn off, um, and the stories about this contagious virus in particular. So this is always true, even if, you know, you're experiencing this outside of a a pandemic. But in this particular case, it's even more important to remember to reassure children. And for younger children, remind them of concrete ways to feel reassured. So for example, ask them if they're in the dark and they're feeling really scared, what action do they think that they could take to feel less scared? And guide them to realize that they can just turn on a light. So you want to give them concrete ways that they can learn self-care. And then you can let them know that when they have a scary thought or feeling, if they share that feeling or thought with you, that alone can make them feel better. Because in a way, it's like turning on the lights when they're in the dark. They're shedding light on their fear by sharing it with you. With all of this, it's important to maintain to the best of your ability any household routines because even though it may take time to get back into predictable schedules, especially while grieving and in this extremely unique circumstance, resuming regular routines helps children feel secure and have something that they can be certain of in this uncertain world. Again, with all things related to parenting, you want to model, share, and support the way that your children can cope. So you can even try this exercise for younger children. You ask your child what comfort feels like and what it smells like and what it tastes like. And then you can give an example. Like you could say, for me, comfort feels like a warm hug or it tastes like a warm hot chocolate with marshmallows or it smells like fresh flowers. And then you can ask them to think about what comforts them and help them write a list down. In this way, they can reference their comfort list when they need to, and you can teach them over time how to take care of themselves. Also, even in tragedy and trauma, it's important to notice that everyday accomplishments that children make, like cleaning their room or completing a puzzle or scoring a basket, if You happen to have access to a basketball court in your backyard. I don't know. Um, Noticing those small day-to-day moments may seem insignificant in the grand scheme of what is going on in the world and during an extreme loss when everything just feels so heavy, but it can give your child an important boost and it gives them permission to take pleasure in the small things. And whenever possible, prioritize sleep, exercise, healthy eating, the things that keep us going. Because in challenging times, such as quarantine, even when you're not experiencing loss, but particularly during a time when you're experiencing real grieving, it can be so difficult to make sure that you get your basic needs met. You need to take care of yourself so that your children see how important that is and you need to help them understand. Research tells us that focusing on maintaining sleep Exercise and healthy eating can help improve our mental health during difficult times and day-to-day. If there's an object that helps both you and your child feel connected to your lost loved one, this object can provide comfort and be a concrete way to feel connected to the memory of someone who isn't there. Whether it's a picture frame with, you know, some wonderful memory photograph or a blanket that someone gave you or a shirt that belonged to your loved one, whatever it is, a necklace, an heirloom, a, you know, letter, something that gives them something concrete to say, hey, you can always go to this and just take a breath and feel that memory. And don't forget to welcome the good stuff so that you can give permission both verbally and non-verbally with your body language and through your own laughter that you actually can experience bouts of laughter and joy and positive emotion right alongside a sense of trauma and loss. That will reassure your child that it does not betray the sadness that they're feeling. It doesn't betray the memory of this lost loved one but that it's an important part of healing because children can often be afraid that laughing or feeling any joy means that somehow they're not honoring their lost loved one. And so they need permission from you to enjoy moments whenever possible. This is a very strange time because social distancing restricts our ability to attend funerals, memorials, and other gatherings. So, you know, normally we would find support for ourselves and our kids during these moments. But you can keep children involved in the process of commemorating and sharing their thoughts and memories. Um, And you can ask other people to share their thoughts and memories in different ways through video and letters. And that provides healing and important connections. So even those virtual ceremonies creative art projects, letter writing projects, Ask, enlisting your child to come up with these kinds of ideas, to reach out to other people, to help share the collective group. Mourning and loss is so important. And that will keep a physical memorial in your house because you can collect these things, make a book, make a video, and this will really help you look at this as a memory for the future and to get through the days now. This is a really tough topic. It is not unique to a pandemic. Children experience loss of loved ones, loss of pets, loss of so much, and we cannot protect them, but we can give them the tools to navigate grief in the healthiest way that they can so that they still can thrive despite going through this kind of trauma. And I am wishing everybody good health. And I hope that you're all doing okay and hanging in there. Please send me any questions or messages that you have on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans podcast and have a good week.